Take your Bible and turn with me to the third chapter of 1 John. I've been in this chapter for the last few weeks. And this morning, I want us to really look at verses 9, 10, and 11. You know, the older that we get, one of the things that we notice about ourselves is a certain similarity to our parents. In fact, just last night, uh, Andrew and I, before bedtime, we were uh, talking about this very thing, and I'd made the comment of how I saw so much of myself in his little face, and uh, I don't know that he <laughs> probably wanted that to be a compliment, but anyway, uh, we, we see so much of ourselves in our children. You've seen those progressive insurance commercials, you know, that aired, I guess, a year or two ago, but you've got this couple, they're being interviewed, the wife has concerns that her husband is becoming just like his dad, down to the very socks that he wears, the way that he dresses, just looking so much like his dad, acting like his dad. And the tagline of the commercial said something to the effect that progressive can't protect you from becoming your parents, but it can save you a bunch with home and auto. <laughs> And those are some funny commercials. But with each passing day, I mean, it's very much true that we tend to resemble, uh, uh, act like our parents, even share the same value system. Uh, character is often passed down from one generation to the next. And the Bible says that parents are to transfer their values to their children. And you think about how that is often the case uh, what our children come to learn about God, what they come to learn about life, largely they learn from what they've seen in their parents. When someone has said that we teach what we know, but we reproduce what we are, and character is often passed down. Now, along those same lines, the Apostle John is saying very much the same thing in this third chapter of 1 John. And we've been in this chapter for some time now, but it's a powerful passage that emphasizes both the life of God that's experienced in the believer as well as the love of God that's expressed through the believer. And we really see this in some verses that we now come to. John has been describing the life of a true child of God. And if it's true that parents often pass their character on to their kids, how much more is this true that God as our Father has passed His character down to us uh, who are His children? And that's the point that John is making here. Uh, he's saying that often our practice serves as proof of our parentage. And so he's been describing the life of a true child of God, which he holds in contrast to those who were false teachers whose lives and practices really didn't line up with the truth. And so John is making this point that who we truly belong to, it's going to be plain for all to see. Uh, in other words, we're going to take on the character of the one to whom we belong. Now, uh, notice what he says there, verse 9. Let's read beginning with verse 9. John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the marks of a child of God. Within these verses, as well as the greater chapter itself, John is clear that there are some marks which distinguish those who are the children of God. Notice that statement there in verse 10. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God. Uh, it translates a word that means to be plainly recognized. He's saying those who are the true children of God, it will be plainly recognized in their life. It's evident who the children of God are. John says that they're marked by certain things. And you know, it really shouldn't take a person long to figure out if you're saved or not. There ought to be some obvious evidence in your life to show that you are. And so what is it in this passage that John says sort of sets the children of God apart? What is it that marks the children of God? Well, I'm going to just show you at least three, three marks. Number one, there's the mark of the new birth. Uh, the children of God are known by the fact that they've experienced a new birth. And this is his emphasis there in verse 9. No one born of God will make a practice of sinning. Now, again, keep in mind the fact that we've, we've dealt with this passage as many have kind of come away somewhat confused uh, there are some who've kind of ventured into this argument of perfection in the Christian life based upon certain translations of this particular chapter. No one who's born of God will sin. Well, you need to understand the grammar of the Greek text there in verse 9. Uh, and in this passage, John's talking about those who habitually practice sin. He's saying evidence that you have passed from death to life, evidence that you've truly come to know God uh, the pattern of sin will be broken in your life. New life has been imparted, and there's a different way of living. Uh, the child of God lives in a different way simply because he's experienced new birth. Where there was nothing but death before, now there is new life. And this is what the Spirit of God has produced. This is what the gospel does in a person's life. To be a Christian is to be born again. And you'll notice that phrase, born of God, used there in the verse. This is really the second time that John has used it. He's also used it back up at the end of chapter 2. And his point is that the new birth precedes new behavior. So where you see him emphasizing behavior, uh, he's emphasizing behavior, but only as it's understood as having flowed out of the new birth itself. He's dealing with a person's practice, but it's really so that he can get to the heart of the issue, which is a person's parentage. And John says that being born of God has abiding results. In fact, uh, that, um, uh, the verb tense is uh, perfect, perfect verb tense, born of God, uh, which means this is something that has happened in the past, and it has ongoing, lasting effects. It's in the passive voice, which means this is not something that a person has secured for himself or herself, but something that God has done in a person's life by means of his grace. 
And so that's what the new birth is. Someone says, well, how does it happen? Well, it's a miracle. If you're a Christian, you are a miracle of God's grace. And isn't it just a wonderful thing that when you preach the gospel and you call upon people to repent and believe the good news and you share the gospel, every now and then God just lets you in on what he's doing in a person's life as that person believes the gospel and they come to know Jesus. And if you've ever been privileged to be able to lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ, it's a remarkable thing and you testify to the fact that it's a miraculous thing when a person passes from death into life. Born of God. Uh, believers have been born of God. That's what John is saying here. And no one who's born of God will make a practice of sinning. Sin will not be the habitual practice of a child of God. He's not dealing with individual sins. Uh, he's dealing with lifestyle pattern. He's dealing with unrepentant patterns of sin. Uh, those are broken in the life of a child of God. Is it possible for a Christian to sin as in individual sins? Yeah, absolutely. John's already dealt with this back in chapter 1, the first part of chapter 2. But what he's talking about here is a pattern of one's lifestyle. He's saying there's going to be a different way of living that's going to be obvious in the life of a child of God. He's not going to be perfect, but he's going to be in process and that's the point that John is making here. The righteous Savior produces righteous saints. And so notice God's seed that's referred to there. This is reference to the new nature that the believer has been given. Specifically, it's the seed of God's Word, which has now taken root in the Christian's life. Uh, Peter has something similar to say about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 where he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So this seed that John's referring to here, it's the same seed that Peter is referring to here. It's the nature of God uh, it's the life of God that comes to take up residence within you as the precious seed of the gospel is implanted within you. And so the source of this new birth is the imperishable seed of God's word. The seed of the gospel is planted into the soil of our heart and it's produced new life. And all of us have our own unique testimony of how we came to know Jesus Christ, but you know that all of us have entered the kingdom of God the same way, through the same means. That might have happened to you a little bit differently. Maybe some of you came to faith in Jesus Christ when you heard the word, when the seed of the gospel was implanted within your heart, maybe as a child. Others of you, maybe you were an adult. Some of you may have come to faith in Jesus late in life. Uh, some of you, it may be the witness of a mom or a dad who led you to Christ. Others of you, it may be this testimony that it was a co-worker who led you to faith in Christ. Some of you, it may have been a preacher who was preaching. But the fact remains, the same thing has happened in the life of every child of God. The same means life is imparted the same way. It's the seed of the Word of God that takes root in the heart and it's a miracle that takes place in a person's life. And salvation is a miracle, which, by the way, that's why we ought to pray. 
That's why our evangelistic efforts should always be watered with the tears of prayer because this is a miraculous work of God that we're longing to see. So the seed is the Word of God, and it's a precious thing. The Holy Spirit comes along and nourishes that seed, sees to it that that seed fell upon fertile soil. And by the grace of God, you came to believe what you heard, and the marvelous result is new life in Jesus Christ. And you've been born again, born into the family of God. And that's what the Apostle John is getting at here. And this means that since we've all been born into the family of God, we call upon the same Father, we've come to Him the same way, it's through Christ alone. And that means that our background and our social status and our educational level and all of those other things that we tend to hold on to, they all become secondary. And what's primary is that We're now brothers and sisters in Christ by means of the new birth. And that's the basis of our unity as the church, isn't it? Isn't it an amazing thing? We've got different people from different walks of life that come together under the banner of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul gets at in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, In Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And now listen to this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so what matters now is our God-given unity in Jesus Christ. And if we try to build our unity in the church on the basis of our first birth and the things associated with our first birth, it'll be doomed to failure. You can't ever build unity around those things. But if you build unity around the basis of our second birth and the fact that it's being born again into the family, the fact that we share the common life of God through faith in Jesus Christ, this is what binds us together. This is what brings us together. You think about how this applies to so much of the racial issues, I feel like, that we've been so uh, privy to in our culture. Someone who said so much about this is Dr. Tony Evans, but listen to this. Tony Evans says the reason that we've not really solved the race problem in America, even after hundreds of years, is that people apart from God are trying to create unity, while people under God who already have unity are not living out the unity we possess. Huh. Now now meditate on that for just a second. He says, our failure to find cultural unity as a nation is directly related to the church's failure to preserve our spiritual unity. He says, the church has already been given unity because we've been made part of the same family. Which means that in Jesus Christ, I have more in common with my saved fellow believer than I do my blood relatives who are not in Christ. Hello. (laughs) It's a deeper relationship. It's a stronger relationship. 
It's one that transcends ethnicity. It's one that transcends socioeconomic status. It's one that transcends everything else around us that the world says is primary. No, the gospel says, let me tell you, this is who you are in Jesus Christ, and this is what you've been made to be. You've been born anew. Isn't that just good news? You know, the world wants unity, but the world doesn't want the truth. Therefore, the world can't have unity. You can't have one without the other. But we who've been born again into the family of God, we have God as our Father. That means that now we look away from ourselves and we look to Christ, and this is the basis for our unity. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They're of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Even so, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying as we, as the body of Christ, look to Jesus Christ and we look to the gospel and we look away from ourselves and we look away from one another and we look away from the imperfections that we see in the lives of others. As we look to Jesus Christ, that is what promotes unity. That's the fork, if you will, that all of these pianos ought to be tuned to. That's a good thought. And so this is what John is getting at here. He says, listen, you have been born of God. There's a difference. And it's evident. There's a change that's taken place in your life. The life of God dwells within you as a Christian. It's the very nature of God himself. And it's a nature which because it's opposed to sin, it will not let let you rest in sin, but rather it it constantly motivates you and prods you toward holiness and Christ-likeness, which means that his greater point here in this passage is that a cavalier attitude toward sin may be evidence that no spiritual life is truly within you, no matter what you say. And notice that the basis For assurance here, it's not so much what a person says, but the way that a person is living his or her life. That's what John is appealing to as evidence here that you've truly passed from death into life. But before we're asked to do anything, John wants us to know that we have been made something. And so there's this emphasis upon doctrine before he gets to this emphasis of duty, which, by the way, you see this is the pattern through all of the New Testament epistles. It's probably the most neatly organized in Paul's letters where you see the first half of those letters often dealing with the doctrinal, what's true of you, who you are in Christ. And then the last half of his letters are spent dealing with the practical. Here's how you live in light of who you are. Well, John is saying the same thing. He's just saying it over and over again in in circular fashion. So this principle of life then is at work in the believer. The believer practices righteousness because the believer possesses righteousness. There is life that's possessed 
Therefore, there will be righteousness that's practiced, which this is why Philippians 2.13 says that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his own good pleasure. So this new birth, this is the first mark of the child of God. Now, notice there's something else involved, and it's a new behavior. Only after you understand who you are, the fact that you've been made something, then will you truly be able to understand behavior and what I do in light of who I am. And you'll notice that he says this in verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So all throughout the passage, the apostle has been saying that doing is the test of being. That is, it's not so much what I say, but what I do that proves my parentage. It's in our behavior that the evidence of our family allegiance is found. Do I belong to God or do I belong to the devil? These are really only the, the only two options. There are only two families living on planet Earth, and every person is a member of one of those two families. And so what's the paternity test? According to 1 John, it's not so much what I say, but what I do. Whoever does not practice righteousness, John says, is not of God. But the one who habitually practices sin proves that he's still in the grip of the evil one. And notice he says, neither is the one who does not love his brother. So love for the family, this is the ultimate proof of our parentage. We're to love one another. (laughs) Now what does that look like in practice? How can you take the emotional and bring it into the realm of the tangible? Which by the way, in verse 11, he's going to go on and say that we should love one another. So he's using the language of command here. So he's commanding us to love one another, while at the same time he's saying that it's also indicative. It's also evidence that you've truly experienced the new birth. There will be love for your brother and your sister. There will be love expressed toward others in the life of the person who's truly come to know and express or experience the love of God. So what does this look like tangibly? Now, by the way, you think about this. This is the language of command, and that kind of flies in the face of everything that the culture around us wants us to believe about love and and only wants to deal with it in the realm of the emotional. Love is an emotion according to the world's understanding of love. Now, do I feel something? Are there feelings associated with love? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the New Testament word for love, the agape love of the believer, the love of God, this is a volitional love that involves the will. Yes, it affects the emotions, but the most shallow part of me is my emotions because my emotions fluctuate. (laughs) I can feel one thing one moment and I can feel something totally opposite the very next. But you see, this is getting into the realm of the volitional here when John uses this language of imperative and we're told to love one another. And that means I'm to love my brother, I'm to love my sister, even when the emotion may not necessarily be there. Someone says, well, what does this look like practically? Well, I think that Paul gives us a real practical view. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, why don't you turn over there for just a second? Love chapter of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
And look specifically at what he says there, long about verse 4. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So if you want to know what this love for one another should look like in a tangible way, I think right there the Apostle Paul gets at it at the heart of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so loving one another, this is at the heart of the Christian life, and this serves as evidence that you've come to know the Lord. Romans 13 says that love is the fulfillment of the law. It all hinges upon love for God and love for others. This kind of love is what distinguishes a true child of God. You, you want to know what it looks like practically? Let me give you another example. Uh, flip over to Luke chapter 10. And I think in Luke chapter 10, you really see this in, 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 in sort of a practical way. Verse 25, the Scripture says that there was a certain scribe or lawyer who stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments. That's what all the law of God really gets at, loving God with all that I am and loving my neighbor as myself. Well, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because <laughs> let's just be honest, there's just certain people in my life, Jesus, that I, I find it hard to identify with as being a neighbor. <laughs> I don't know that I can love this person because this person has done this or this person has done that. This person has acted this way toward me or done this to me. Surely this is not my neighbor who I'm to love as I love myself. But now to answer that question, Jesus tells him a story, and it's a story that we're all familiar with. Jesus replied, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now let's get to the application. Uh, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. 
So here you have the priest, here you have the Levite, here you have religious figures. They don't have time for the man in need. They pass by. They're too busy. But there's a Samaritan, an unlikely person, a person that the Jews would have looked down upon because of this person's ethnicity. Listen to me. He goes to the man in need, bandages up his wounds, pours on oil and wine as medicine, takes him to an inn, covers all the medical expenses that the man's going to need, and if there's anything else, he says, you put it on my bill. I'll be back. (laughs) This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's the thing. Who of us can say that we've loved others that way? Because let me be honest with you. I tend to see more of myself in the priest and the Levite in terms of my relationships with people. Now, sure, there may be bright moments, but let's be honest, they're still pretty dim when we see them in the greater context of the love of God. Who is the good Samaritan? Jesus is. He's the one who's loved us this way. He's the one who came all the way to where we were, laying in the ditch, helpless, could not save ourselves, could not do anything to rescue ourselves from the tyranny of sin. Bleeding, dying, it's spiritual death. Oh, but the Son of God came all the way to where we were in an act of selflessness, in an act of sacrifice. He paid the bill. And now, this is then to be the basis for the way that we love one another in the family of God. If we've been the recipient of this kind of love, this is the kind of love that's to be reflected in my life and your life as a believer. I know that I can't do it left up to myself. I've got to have some spiritual resources that I can draw upon. It's the love of God poured out within me. God loves through me. He loves others this way. And this is what John is getting at here. When he's calling upon us to love one another, it ought to be understood that it's only within this context of having passed from death to life. It's only possible because of the new birth It's only possible to love someone this way because there's been a transformation take place in your heart and life. And Jesus said, this new command I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 13, 35. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So love within the family of God, love within the family framework, love that we have among brothers and sisters in the family, this is to leave the world scratching its head, wondering where does such love and unity come from? So the mark of a, of a Christian, it's, it's a new birth, a new behavior, and then notice last, it involves a new brotherhood. Notice he's, he's, he's using this word brother there, at the end of the verse, the end of verse 10, then he gets into verse 11 and says we're to love one another. So he's using the language of family here. So this hope that we have in Jesus inspires us to come together as brothers and sisters. This common faith that we have, the new birth that we've experienced, places us within the family of God. And really from verse 10 all the way down through verse 17, John will use this term brother eight separate times. 
And so there's a family love that marks the children of God. (laughs) And before we will ever prove our love to those who are unbelievers, we need to prove our love to one another. And it's the love that we have within the church that serves as a wonderful, powerful testimony to a loveless world. There ought to be the aroma of heaven when the saints of God gather together, when we come together, when we worship. There ought to be a supernatural dynamic that's characteristic of our relationships. Why? Because the new birth has placed us into a brand new brotherhood. God is our Father, and fellow believers are our brothers and sisters. But unfortunately, we've not always presented a pretty picture to the world around us, have we? Our actions can often contradict our words, whether it be through infighting or hypocrisy. And oftentimes, when we fail to portray the love of God and the beauty of Christ to a watching world, the result is that the world has turned a deaf ear to our message. Our lives can eclipse our words and render them meaningless. But you see, the thing is, what we are always speaks louder than what we say. I think one of the most profound comments that was ever made about the early church came from a guy by the name of Aristides. He was a Greek philosopher who wrote an apology or a defense to the Roman emperor uh, uh, Hadrian in 125 A.D., But listen to what he said. He said the Christians, having witnessed the Christians up close and personal, he's he's making a defense, an argument for Christianity to to the emperor. He says that the Christians show kindness to those near them. Whenever they're judges, they judge uprightly. They do good to their enemies. Through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. Falsehood is not found among them. And behold, how they love one another. He who has gives to him who has not without boasting. In other words, he didn't put it on Facebook. When they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a brother. If they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. Such, O king, is their manner of life. Truly, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. Would that be said of my life and your life? And would that be said of our fellowship? Behold how they love one another. The Apostle John was there that night when he heard Jesus say, By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Wow. And that is something that he never got away from. Here he is as an old apostle, an apostle who had been exiled to Patmos for his faith and for his love for his Savior. There's an interesting tradition about the apostle John that says that he didn't die on Patmos, but that he actually was brought back to Asia Minor. And uh, it's said that he returned to the city of Ephesus where he lived out the remainder of his days. And there's this beautiful tradition that says that shortly before he died, fellow believers would carry him 
to all the churches in a chair because he was so old he couldn't walk. But as he was passing by, as he was through the streets, they were carrying him on a chair. He'd have his arms raised, and this is what the old apostle would say with tears streaming down his cheeks. Love one another. Little children, love one another. And I think if he were to come through those doors and come down this center aisle, he probably would say the same thing to us. Don't you think so? And oh, what a difference the love of God makes. That's all the time we have. Let's stand together for prayer this morning. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, earnestly because sincere love covers a multitude of sins. It's the same thing that John is saying here. And the source of this love is the same. It's the Son of God. Would you bow with me for prayer this morning? If you have never experienced the new birth, if you would say, Pastor, I'm not sure that I've ever been born again. Listen, right there where you are, turn from your sin and believe the good news of the gospel, that Christ died for your sin and that he rose again from the dead. And the scripture says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Praise God, I'm a whosoever. And you are a whosoever. But I know that he loves you and desires to save you. Will you trust him? I realize the majority of us in the room are believers and perhaps have been for a number of years. But when you look at your life, perhaps under the microscope, can this selfless love that the Apostle John is describing here, is it characteristic of your life and characteristic of your relationships? Have you bought in maybe to the world's understanding of love, perhaps more so than you realize? Seeing it only as an emotion that you feel, and if you don't feel a certain way, then your actions towards someone are going to be a certain way? Or do you see it in the language of command that it really is? But know that it's only because you have been made to be who you are that you're free to do what God commands you to do because he's put his love in you. He's put his life in you. He's put his spirit in you. So Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that the love of God would be the atmosphere of this faith family. Lord, just like oxygen, Lord God, may it be an atmosphere, an aroma of heaven that gives the world a good taste of what it means to be in the family of God. I think about our city and I think about those, Lord, and our relationships, people we work with, we live beside. Lord, use us in some way to share the love of God, both in our actions and with words to preach good news. Do a work, Lord God, in us and right here in our city. Do a work through us for Christ's sake. Amen.